And it also makes the parents learn a lot. I get with my elementary school readers, even though it ages down to pre-K, I will have parents being like, I learned so much and this was so enriching for me. And it's like wild that my kid can keep going back and back and back and learning more and more and more as they get older with this book. Welcome to the Creative Solutions Podcast. On the show, it's my job to tease out the creative solutions my guests are coming up with to change the world through creativity, social action, and mindset. I also give you tips and techniques so you can do the same. This episode is brought to you by my class, Meditation for Busy People, where you'll learn how to relieve stress and discover clarity and joy in just five minutes a day. It's also brought to you by the Brain FM app and this podcast host, Podbean. Also, follow the podcast on Instagram or TikTok and check out our shop for merch, music, and musings. The links are all in the show notes. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Isolde Trachtenberg. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to chat with this week's guest. Here's the thing about Rachel Ignatowski. I, I already told her I'm a huge fan. She's she's doing the prime directive work that I love, which is at the intersection of art and science. And teaching kids all about science and observation in a really fun and beautiful and artistic way. So I'm excited for you to meet her. Let me tell you about her. Rachel is a New York Times bestselling author and illustrator based in California. She knows that illustration is a powerful tool that can make learning exciting, and she's created many nonfiction books about science and history. Her books include Women in Science, which I have and I love, Women in Sports, and Women in Art. Woohoo! The Wondrous Workings of Planet Earth and the History of the Computer, which I also have and love. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm a fangirl. I'm fangirling over Rachel. Rachel also has introduced backyard biology to the youngest readers with the picture book, What's Inside a Flower, and her newest book that's coming out very soon in September... And by the time this episode airs, it might already be out, or I might try if I can get my brain around it to time it so that it comes out right as the book comes out. What's inside a caterpillar cocoon, which haven't you wondered that? I've wondered that. And the one that's coming out in March of 2024, what's inside a bird's nest. I'm so excited to talk with you, Rachel. Thank you for being on the show. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I... I love that you use the phrase prime directive because that just makes <laughs> me think of Star Trek so much. And, you know, Star Trek, the next generation is like, I'm a huge nerd for it. I, I try to sneak it into as many books as possible. Awesome. So you'll, yeah, you'll see, you'll see like a little starship enterprise in both <laughs> women in science and the history of the computer. If you can find it, they're, they're in there, they're in there. Oh, I love that. It's like R2-D2 and C-3PO are in the hieroglyphics in uh, Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I, I was like, yay, they they know their fans, right? So I'm so glad you did that. Oh, yeah. I am a... <laughs> I'm a ginormous, ginormous Star Trek nerd. And in fact, I'm an immigrant. And the very first thing I, when we immigrated from the former Soviet Union, we were placed in Detroit and our next door neighbors invited us to watch television at their house. I didn't speak any English. The very first thing I ever saw of American television was the Star Trek episode, The Empath. And what's interesting about that is that there's very little dialogue because she she's mute, she doesn't speak. And it just opened up the world of science fiction to me and I've loved science fiction ever since. And it sounds like you're a science fiction person, science fiction nerd, I'll say it, we're all nerds together uh, too, but, but 
that you've really decided to sort of combine science and science fiction and writing and illustration into this beautiful stew of ways to make science real and also wonder hyphen full for students. I would love to ask you, starting right off, how did that happen? How did you get from, I'm living my life, I'm a Star Trek nerd, to I'm going to create science and art together for kids so that they really develop a love of science at any age? Well, you know, I if we're going to talk about Star Trek a little bit, I grew up um, as a little baby watching Star Trek The Next Generation and eating rice pudding with my mom. Awesome. And I feel like this idea of like this like almost like utopia of like we're going out into the stars and exploring and um, it's kind of like the conflict doesn't come from like within, it comes from solving problems. All of that really affected me as in how can we get there <laughs> you know right. like are we going closer to star trek or are we going closer to like 1984 those are the kind of like things i think about a lot um and as an artist because um also when i was just a little kid i was always drawing and writing and being creative it's just kind of like this is what i am best at so i'm going to nurture what i'm best at um, and then, you know, you think of yourself as an artist and you're like, what can I do to help us get us to this? Like, like if that's running in the back of your head, like, oh, like a world you can live in among the stars, like, how do we get closer to that? And how can I use my art to get closer to that? So, um, when I graduated all the way back in 2011, my first job was actually at Hallmark greeting cards mm. and I was illustrating happy birthday cards and drawing flowers and like, you know, really at work thinking about Christmas all day long. And for me, when I would go home at night, I'd be like, I feel like I'm living someone else's dream job. Mm. Like this doesn't feel like my dream. So um, I thought, you know, how can I, you know, just always thinking about like, how can I use my art to get, to you know, talk about topics that I think are important, get us uh, closer to a world that I want to live in. I started doing um, science communication mm. on the side when I got home from work. I started drawing pictures about human anatomy. I started drawing pictures um, and like kind of like cool diagrams that my friends who were teachers, because I had a lot of friends who were teachers and Teach for America within Kansas City what could they possibly use in their classroom? And because I was creating that kind of work, um, the kind of freelance I wanted started reaching out to me. So I had the opportunity to create artwork for cancer research foundations and mm. science magazines. And I kind of just started this whole freelance career where I was talking with science, sci like talking with scientists, taking their work um, and you know turning them into cartoons. And all of that uh, led me to be able to quit my job at the age of 25, start my own business, and eventually get to publish my first book um, that following year. 
uh, called Women in Science, which kind of brought all of my passions together into mm. one place. And since then, I've just been publishing a book a year and getting to talk about whatever I want. So I feel very, very lucky. That is fantastic. I love it. And it's so fascinating to me that you took so many disciplines and you went, I'm going to mush them together into this this business and this career that that solves problems. It really does, because so many kids, frankly, are afraid of science and they're and they're they shy away from from, you know, even if they're curious about it, they they're sort of encouraged almost to shy away. And so you're taking this and you're making it super accessible, which I adore. But I'd love I'd love to get your thoughts on on this education sort of piece of this with all of your or so many of your friends having been teachers. How do you think we can be using art even more in science education? What are your thoughts on art in science education? And I have a feeling I know what those are because you're a science illustrator. And how can how can we infuse even more art, language arts and fine arts into science to sort of marry them even more strongly? Well, you know, I'm a graphic designer and a lot of people don't know this, but a graphic designer's job is to make reading as easy as possible mm -hmm. and, you know, um, to not make it scary, to make it so that you can understand the information at a glance. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we, you know, graphic designers use their skills to sell products, to work for major companies. But I thought like, what if I could use these skills to make topics that are really challenging to learn, easy to learn. And I love that you talked about like this fear that's behind learning science. I have found that adults feel that fear way more than kids do. It's a learned fear. Hmm. So what I, have been trying to do with my artwork is by introducing hard topics, whether it's computer science, ecology and climate change, um, women's history, um, all of those topics that can feel a little challenging to learn or talk about um, by using illustration, by like using a friendly language also within your illustration where it's like there's happy faces on everything and you know it's called you know it feels almost like you're going through super mario land it's so <laughs> joyous you introduce them to the topic visually mm -hmm. they already have learned something before they read their first word and then they feel confident learning more and then my whole point is that you you read my books and then you want to pick up the the big boy books, the big girl books, the <laughs> the, the, the thickums I call them, the textbooks. Um, it gives you the confidence to dive in deeper. And what I, you know, the it's so great because the feedback that I've been getting is that here's an example. Um, I'll have parents read women in science with kids who are as young as elementary school kids, even though it's more of a middle school adult reader, and what they'll do is they'll read one story a night. The little kid will read all the fun facts that I've organized on the page. And the parent will read the, um, the like thicker, um, body copy, the text, mm -hmm. and then they'll spend all night asking each other questions, researching online 
And that has become like a nightly routine for many, many parents with my books. And what makes me really excited is that with my new elementary school science series, my What's Inside series, that I'm able to kind of like hook these kids early into science by really explaining to them that science is all around us. It starts with the little questions that we ask. How does the world work? What's inside a flower? What's inside a caterpillar's cocoon? Like these questions are science questions that can be answered with science. And um, it starts with just exploring your own backyard and your neighborhood. And by giving them that confidence early on and explaining to them that, yes, in fact, this is indeed science. I hope it gives them that confidence when they're older, when they're adults, to not shy away from asking those sorts of questions and Mm -hmm. actually knowing how to research the answers, whether or not they go into science as their discipline or not. I love everything you just said. I'm I'm like, mic drop. I'm just probably going to be saying that a lot. Yeah, it's so... (laughs) It, it is it is so powerful to to get this curiosity going early on and that's something like i was reading i was reading uh uh goodness i forget the name of your computer book what's in a computer uh or the history of the computer oh, the history and, of the computer yes yeah. the history of the computer and what's interesting to me i'm reading it and i'm going well i know what a motherboard is and i know what a cpu is and i know what this is and i know what that is because i used to do tech support so i used to get into the innards of pcs and macs many years ago when i worked at nasa and and the thing about it is is that when you get to a place where you're like oh yeah i never thought of that like that's right every computer is in binary it's going to talk in binary so you know an a is that zero one zero 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 one or whatever binary for a is and each thing is just either a yes or a no or one or a zero these are things kids nowadays who are holding supercomputers in their hands when they're holding an iphone or an android or whatever they're not thinking about that so you're taking this sort of to the it's it's kind of going backwards in a way not backwards but going historically uh, backwards to see some of this stuff that we take for granted, whereas people in the 50s and 60s, when this stuff was really just huge room-sized computers, they, they had to actually look at it from that perspective. And so I'm wondering, what is your process? What do you start thinking is important to share in a one-page spread like jumping around a little bit the women in science i'm going to go with katherine johnson because so many people know who she is now from hidden figures uh what did you choose how did you decide in a 30 some odd year career what was going to be important to include in that one page spread of who she was and what her contributions were so um it really depends on the book the mm-hmm. information drives the design so i start with the research and then from there, I, I lay out the page and I'm able to kind of like create these buckets of information. So example with Katherine Johnson, what is going to be visually told versus what is going to be written down? Mm. So first we have an illustration of Katherine Johnson. We have three fun facts about her. Um, then you go on to the, you know, the facing page and it's a frame of fun facts um, that frames basically the the like 250 word write up about her. 
And so um, it's all about creating buckets while you research. I mm -hmm. think for the history of the computer, what is really cool about that book is that I go back in time to prehistoric humans learning how to create the first numerical tools, like literally like notching on bone to keep track of the amount of sheep in their flock, like things like that. And this idea that as humans with our big old brains, we have been creating tools to expand our mental capacity to be able to build bigger and more complex societies since the dawn of time. And if you take that theme and you expand it from prehistoric times to now, as you're writing a computer history book, you talk about more than just, you know, what's a motherboard, how to code. You're talking about themes of technology, how they impact humanity, and also why we were making the things we were making. What were the drivers to create a the first programmable computer? And when you start thinking about that context, you understand this, you know, this iPhone that you're carrying around in your hand 24 seven, and you get to start thinking about it almost like a medium rather than just a piece of technology. And so that book, how do I cram like 25,000 years of human history into one book that's only 126 pages because all of those choices, like how big the book is, that's made before I even start writing it because those are kind of price point questions that the publisher and you discuss before you even start writing a book. Um, mm. To be able, because that's what it, that's what you have to do when it's so heavily illustrated. It's like illustration costs money. So mm. you have to know how many pages you're doing. Um, to organize that, I created chapters that featured uh, the information in different ways. So I have my introduction chapter, introduction to a chapter, and then in each spread, there's like stories from computer history that kind of do the sort of Katherine Johnson framing devices. They're like frames and like uh, sort of like spot illustrations that like bring the viewer in with illustration, but then there's like a write-up, but then you turn the page and then I'm highlighting three, three uh, important inventions that are fully illustrated um, just to give you a sense of the time period. I have a small timeline in each of those chapters. So you can like kind of get a sense of what's going on um, during those like decade long periods that each chapter is cut up into. And then I end it with important people from those time periods mm. who are like influential and kind of help create the culture. And also um, whether good or bad had a huge impact on society. Um, and by Presenting information in different ways, it allows the reader to jump around the page and also learn at their own pace. I think people learn in different ways and you have mm -hmm. to respect that. And I try to create as many paths to learning as possible when I'm doing my layout. And again, that goes back to just like my skills as a graphic designer. How do you get people to read without even reading? But the reading at a glance the hierarchy of information. So um, yeah, it's it makes it really, really fun. And it also means that when I'm creating a book, I research and I do layout before I even start really diving into the writing. 
I'm taking a second to take all that in. Hold on. I don't, I don't call it, I, I don't call it dead air. I call it anticipatory air. I, I just need to synthesize everything you just said. Wow. Okay. So I'm, I am fascinated by this notion of, and, and I've, I've worked in an, in an environmental education program when I was at NASA for 20 years. And we talked about this. We talked about how do people learn and the fact that different cultures will learn differently. But this notion of here, you have a page and how am I going to provide kind of a roadmap almost or a maze so that somebody can approach from any different direction and still wind up learning and being engaged and being excited and more to the point curious to learn more so i would love to to chat with you about that when it when different readers are going to be reading this like i i read both women in science and the history of the computer and i'm like these are adults books they are you know kids may enjoy them but i'm like as an adult i'm going yes please more and and here's the thing that roadmap that you're talking about seems to be coming from it, it it's obviously accessible and, and makes me delighted to read it but age appropriate stuff like how how would you get a kindergartner in and curious as opposed to a 10th grader in and curious as opposed to a 50 some odd year old woman like me in and curious i love science first of all to begin with and I enjoyed the heck out of your books because I found so much in there that was tantalizing for me as an adult. So is there anything special that you're doing to go, I expect a younger reader to, to glom onto this. I expect a middle grade reader to glom onto this. Is it is it just graphic design or are you infusing a certain amount of storytelling in that process? And if so, what is that process? It's, it's, all, it's all intentional. So every single one of my books, I like especially the history of the computer and women in science because they're written at a middle grade le level. That's what the news is written at. Mm -hmm. So that really allows it to be aged up to like PhD level readers who are like, I want to learn more about the topic I love or, uh, you know, people who are like graduates who like, you know, people like us who are adults who are like, I don't know anything about this topic. This is an intro, but it also ages all the way. Those books really age down to like eight, nine, 10. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I kind of use a different technique with my, um, my, my elementary school readers where I age those from pre-K all the way up to eight, nine, 10. Hmm. And even then adults still like reading them too. And guess what? That's just the power that illustration has when you draw something and you make it beautiful and you take the time to organize all this information where it's almost like so beautiful you want to frame it you end up reaching this crazy wide audience and for my middle school readers i layer the information so like i have information that are like i like to call them like fun facts and also just like things that you would want to just like cute things that you would just want to know about the topic. I, I, I layer that with illustration into each of my spreads. So if you want to just like learn, a, like if you want to just look at the illustrations, read the captions, read the fun facts, let's go back to Katherine Johnson. You just want to look at the illustration of Katherine Johnson, read the three fun facts about her that are woven into the illustration um, and then read the fun fact borders 
go ahead, full steam ahead. If you're not in the mood to read that day and you just want to like look at cartoons, that's cool. That that's valid. And that allows me to reach really, really young readers. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you have the more dense text that's a little more technical that talk about, you know, topics that might be a little hard. Like, I mean, in Women in Science, I feature Miriam Mizarkani, who does like hyperbolic math. I had to talk to people that I knew who were math majors in college to, for me to understand what was going mm -hmm. on. Because, you know, I have trouble figuring out tips sometimes. I'm like, Carrie, I'm like, oh, move the decimal point, <laughs> you know? Um, so I talked to them to be able to synthesize that information for like, you know, everyday layman, and then also kind of touch on things that if you're a math major, you would kind of be interested in. Um, but by by incorporating the illustration, by creating these different like little pockets and spaces of information that are at different reading levels, that's how you get to reach everybody. And, you know, okay, so like in planet Earth, we're talking about climate change. That's a really scary topic to talk about. But mm. in the wondrous workings of planet Earth, you know, you'll see on the same page where I'm explaining, you know, an ecosystem, what their ecological benefits are. I'll have a fun fact that is just like also joyous. That's like, oh, wombats poop in cubes. And by <laughs> infusing, infusing the hard science with the fun fact joy, you really can reach everyone. And also you're holding their hand. You're like, you're like, hey, the thing that we're going to talk about is really dense, but I got you. I got you. You're going to learn something no matter what when you leave this page. And I kind of do the opposite for my What's Inside series, where the set text is the very simple read aloud text that, you know, is that easy reader. And then I go in with my hand done illustration and I layer in really complicated things like, <laughs> what is photosynthesis i like literally illustrate the uh, like chemical equation for photosynthesis in the book so that like those really eager third graders are getting that information they need to feel confident when they're going into middle school and high school so mm. everything's there and it also makes the parents learn a lot i get with my uh elementary school readers even though it ages down to pre-k I will have parents being like, I learned so much and this was so enriching for me. And it's like wild that my kid can keep going back and back and back and learning more and more and more as they get older with this book. I love that so much. And it's so interesting uh, that 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 notion of we can keep coming back, we can keep learning more is it's just true right if you if you have this this resource i remember when i was a kid and i've never found them again and it's just tragic there were these four books one was yellow green blue and kind of a pink and they were called who where what and when something no or why where what and when something like that and all they were were questions and then answers. Why is the sky blue? Why do the leaves? Uh, why do the trees lose their leaves every year? That it was just a just a bunch of where's the oldest place on earth? Things like that. It was just 
amazing questions and answers and illustrations or images. And my sis, my younger sister and I, I would, I would have been 10, she would have been three, would pour over those books every night. We would sit down and we would read a bunch of the questions and the answers. And that's how she learned. She was three, four years old, but that's how she learned. And she loved those books and so did I. And I think there was that combination that was beautiful that made it easier for her to to understand the concepts and, and easier for me to understand them and learn them too. But this brings me to a question. And, and the, I guess the question is, has there been a specific scientific concept or topic that you found challenging to present to younger readers? And if so, how did you overcome it and make it understandable and engaging and exciting for them? That's really interesting. I think, I think when I talk about climate change, that is one of the harder things to talk about mm. only because I think when, you know, to touch on something that we said before, where it's like, you know, learning about science can feel scary sometimes because it's so big and so complicated. And when we talk about climate change, for me, the fear is real. You know what sure. I mean? I think a lot of people are feeling that way. So how do you talk about it in a way that is productive and mm. also age appropriate when you're talking about things. So in my middle school reader, The Wondrous Workings of Planet Earth, um, we, I just present the information and I, I just feel like kids are, they have, they can handle it. So I explain what climate change is, I explain what greenhouse gases are, and I also um, talk about how different ecosystems around the world are affected by it, but more so, you know, I was talking with this scientist at, I, I had the opportunity to go to the UN in New York and I got to talk to a bunch of uh, climate scientists there. And what they were saying to me was like, you know, a lot of times when we talk about conservation, we are like, look how cute this panda is. Don't you want to save this panda? And they're like, that doesn't seem to really be working and touching kids. Mm -hmm. I think we need a different approach. And I was like, you know, as an adult, when learning about all this stuff, for me, what hits the most is learning about ecological benefits, because that's not something we really talked about in my school growing up. This idea that the planet provides us with irreplaceable resources. And I'm like, that's what kids are going to care about, because that's what adults care about. At the end of the day, we want, you know, clean air and clean water and soil that can create food and plants that lock that soil in place and protect us from storms, ecological benefits and infusing that into the book, all the positives that the planet provides us and the importance of protecting it. That is the way that I have found to talk about climate change in an effective way. And in my book, what's inside a flower and what's inside a caterpillar cocoon, we're talking to an even younger audience. So what's really effective when we talk to a younger audience? Well, we can tell them ways to protect their, you know, our planet that they can actually do at home. Things like growing a biodiverse yard and also like things like, hey, maybe you should, you know, leash your cat so it doesn't eat all the birds when they're they're going outside, you know, things like that, um, that may seem small, but actually have this really big ecological, you know, impact when when it's done by a lot of people. So 
by talking about those kinds of things, what we can do that's positive, and then also the positive things that the planet provides us, we can talk about scary con scary content like that. What's really cool about my What's Inside a Caterpillar Cocoon book is that we follow the life cycle of both moths and butterflies, and we talk about all the good things that these tiny little cutie crawlies do for us. And again, that's like introducing the idea of ecological benefits. Maybe I don't phrase it that way in the book because ecological benefits is a really big vocab word for free K, but what does nature do for us? What does it provide us? And we get that conversation started at a very, very young age with my books. So I'm really excited about it. I think that's great. Again, mic drop, mic drop, mic drop. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. And listening to you, I, I'm, I've been working on a book all about water and water quality and the things we can do to conserve water and why. And what's interesting about it for me in looking at that when I work, when I do my assemblies with fourth to fourth to eighth grade, really, for this, and we talk about water quality and water as a natural resource and water scarcity, they get it. They just don't necessarily get that it is a long term issue, you know, like it's the difference between talking about weather and climate. Weather is is it going to rain today? Climate is are, are we facing a, a heating up of the planet that's going to be decades and more and more and more and hundreds perhaps of years? It's hard for us to think long term like that as humans. So it's really interesting to me that you are using these concepts in a way to, to look at the benefits of conserving in for, for my book the benefits of conserving water for example we talk about it from the perspective of cape town south africa and and you know zero day zero where there's going to be less than 13.5 percent of water available in a town that really they they line up for water this is the kind of thing that they have to do and kids get it but as a book i'm wondering like when you're doing this and you're trying to enhance the scientific content of the books, how do you strike that balance with the, this is what's good for us, this is what nature does for us, to what are our responsibilities to nature, to the planet? Well, I mean, I just lay it out there. I go, I go here, like, especially in the uh, wondrous workings of planet Earth, like, these are the things as a society that we have to push forward. And you could see it in like sort of the back spread of the book where I really lay it out. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm just going to say this, a graph helps and <laughs> an illustrated graph is even better. I do a ton of illustrated graphs in the book that just lay it out there for them. I mean, kids are a lot smarter than we give them credit for, uh, you know, talking about like water in the water cycle, just getting a kid to understand that, there is certain water that is like supposed to be long-term locked away, like in glaciers and stuff, explaining this idea that certain resources are locked away for, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years, like phosphorus, you know, and nitrogen and that were, or, you know, car or like, you know, fossil fuels that's supposed to be locked away for a very, very, very long time. And the fact that we're releasing these things into their natural cycles at an incredibly fast rate, all of those things. Mm -hmm. And we don't really, and that's going to have an ecological impact, you know, releasing all this like phosphorus and nitrogen back into our ecosystems, letting it run off into our oceans, sure. uh, releasing, 
you know, releasing massive amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas, which then like greenhouse gases can be good, but too many of them. Oh, no. You right. know, explaining that um, concept of long term versus short term in these natural cycles. A graph helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the, for sure. You know? For sure. Yeah. No, for sure. And Absolutely. And I think that that's so cool. Like my, I'm going to just talk about this for a second. My concept is following a drop of rainwater through the hydrologic cycle. And it touches on all of that. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting to me about all of this is that, you know, I'm not an illustrator. So I would, I would have to do it a different way or work with an illustrator or something like that. But when you're talking about this, these visual components to scientific content, you have to strike that balance. And is there something that you're doing when you're creating your books that, that looks at that? Is it still just all the design or are you, are you still looking at, oh, how are young readers going to be impacted? And how are older readers going to be impacted before you begin? Is like that, is that a concern or are you going, this is what I want to write and this is what I'm going to talk about? Well, you know, I, I'm an illustrator first before everything else. Like mm -hmm. for me, the writing, I, like what are people coming to my books for? They're coming for the illustration. If they wanted to read a textbook, they could read a textbook, <laughs> but you know, um, they're coming for the illustration. They're coming for the fun of it. So mm. for me, it's about infusing fun into it as much as possible. Like when I say a graph helps, these graphs exist. They exist. They're just boring yeah. and kind of not fun to look at. I infuse the fun. I infuse the joy. And by doing that, you reach all audiences. It's just as simple as that. And, you know, okay, so... When I started my career, some of the first illustrations I did were these human anatomy illustrations where I took these body systems and I, I just kind of made them into fun characters. And I just did it because I thought it was cool. Like, honestly, that was the motivator. But then I get an email from this dad who's like, I have a daughter who's four years old. She has cystic fibrosis. She needs to use, you know, something to help her breathe at night. And she, she doesn't understand what's going on with her body. And so I wanted to use, uh, you know, a diagram of human anatomy to explain it to her. But for a four-year-old, a traditional human anatomy diagram looks really scary. They look like, you know, it's monstrous. It's a person cut open, but my illustration of the respiratory system that's a cute little character that has happy faces all over it and like the diaphragm has little arms who's raising the roof you know <laughs> that was cute to her so every night when they went to bed he would use my illustration to trace the path that oxygen was going through her body all the way down to her alveoli and kind of explained to her that she was using this like respirator at night to help her breathe and that it was helping her breathe and it calmed her down to be and became part of their nightly routine. For me, I was like, you know what? This is a big moment for me because my illustration that I just made to be cool and talk about information that I thought was interesting is actually helping someone who's scared learn about their body and then also just like have a better understanding of themselves 
and the mm-hmm. world they live in. And if I could reach a scared four-year-old, that means I could reach anybody. And that's the power, again, the power of illustration. You set the tone with the type of illustration you do, and you can make something that is scary feel less scary with something as simple as a happy face. I love that so, so much. And you know, you're answering my questions before I ask them because my next question was gonna be, can you give me an example of, literally, I have it written down, can you give me an example of feedback you've received from young readers or educators about the impact of your books on their understanding and interest in science? But I really, you've already answered that. Yes, you've, you, <laughs> there's the example. But I guess the thing that I'm wondering is when you get this feedback, how does their feedback influence what you're gonna do next, your future work? You know, I don't think that artists should be super beholden to everyone's feedback, but positive feedback, I mean, it just makes me want to keep going. You know what I mean? Like um, when I wrote Woman in Science, my goal was I just want to at least get one person to like understand themselves better and like understand their passion for science and maybe want to pursue it. And since I wrote that book, I have gotten endless emails from young women who are now professionals or in grad school who are like, I read your book and I was inspired, for example, like by Jocelyn Bell Burnell to become an astrophysicist. Like, as like, cause the book has been out since 2016. So mm-hmm. these kids who read them in middle school and high school, they're like professionals now. And they're like, I didn't know what an astrophysicist was. I read your book and I realized that's what I want to do. I knew I love science, but now I know exactly what kind of science I want to do. And I went, yay, I did it. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. And now that book is published all over the world in 25 different languages and is used in classrooms to not only teach women's history, but teach science history. So that kind of feedback is the kind of feedback that makes me want to keep going. Um, And honestly, I... I don't get too much negative feedback about any of my books. I, I just get, I, everyone seems to really like them. So I feel really <laughs> lucky that I could, I just feel really lucky that I get to continue to do things that I want to do. Um, you know, uh, sometimes I'll have people who are like, you should do this topic or that topic. And that's always really helpful. I always love hearing about the topics that people want me to cover. But at the end of the day, I just end up doing what I want to do. <laughs> and if it <laughs> coincides with what other people want me to do, then cool, let's high five. That's, you know, again, you answered my question before I asked it. That was going to be the next question is that notion of how do you choose? And so I guess, is there is there a particular science field that fascinates you more than others? Or are you basically just... I'm a science nerd and whatever I am curious about is the next thing I'm going to do. It's kind of like whatever keeps me up at night worrying. Mm. That's what I end up writing about. So, I mean, I wrote the history of the computer because, you know, we have this, 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 you know, brain expander in our hand. We have these smartphones and, you know, a lot of people have been talking about when I talk to scientists, when I talk to parents and teachers, they almost feel this sense of dread about the smartphone where they're like, man, like social media is out of control. And they equate the smartphone with social media, even though Mm -hmm. that's just an application that we're using it for. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, 
you know, computers, my whole life, I've done nothing but good things for me. I draw my illustrations on the computer. I started my business because I had access to the internet and I could form a shop online. And, you know, I even met my husband on an online dating app. Like that is how you do it. Computers have it. only enriched my life, you know? And to hear that people are so uh, afraid of, like where they're like, I don't want my kid to even have access to a com like a computer at home because I'm so afraid of these uh, social apps. And I think that's really warranted. Um, but I, I think we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So to fix that fear, I wanted to break down computer history and like my like kind of sort of thing I want people to walk away from, just like how you can vote with your dollar, you can vote with what you choose to do with your computing power. Uh, during the pandemic, I um, participated in like Stanford's uh, folding at home program where you basically lend them time on your graphics card to be able to model proteins mm. that um, then were used to help figure out the structure of COVID-19 and then help find, you know, the, the, the vaccines that we have been, you know, using. By renting out time on my computer, not renting, basically lending out time on my computer, just a small amount of time I was able to network with, you know, thousands of people all over the world and create a supercomputer that is a resource for Stanford to use. That is really called voting with your computer power. You could also think of it this way that, you know, using this like incredibly powerful tool to just only use it to, you know, go on social and then basically sell your data. Who are you enriching? Who are you giving your power to? Like, I love Instagram. I love it all, but I think it's really important that we critically think about this stuff and that we also understand that we have the power to do what we want with computers and ask for better, you know? And so I used this history book basically to talk about these topics of who has power and what are they using that power for? And then introduce them to the reader to resources like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is basically like the ACLU for digital rights to protect your privacy, to um, protect you from these large, you know, large uh, tech corporations, introduce them to resources like that. And that is like, kind of to go back to what you're saying before, that's the kind of feedback I respond to. I hear like, what are teachers and parents kind of talking about? What do they not understand? What do they wish they had tools to talk, uh, to be, to inform themselves about so they feel less scared. And that's the kind of stuff I like making books about. I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, again, mic drop, mic drop, mic drop. And it's so, it's so fascinating to me, like this notion of, letting the curiosity be what drives things and at the same time being a critical critical thinking is the skill i think we most need uh followed quickly by compassion or maybe it's compassion followed quickly by critical thinking i'm not sure which and and yet there there is to me this notion of curiosity right i that's what i respond to best in all the world is what what 
what makes me go, I wonder if or imagine if that's what I love the most. And so I guess I want to ask you right now, what are you most curious about right now? For me, especially during the lockdown, I thought a lot about the teachers who were struggling in classrooms and also how kids could connect more with the outdoors Mm. and the outdoor space. So for me, creating resources for some of the teachers who were struggling the most, which in my opinion was a lot of those elementary school teachers, it is Mm -hmm. like really hard to reach those kids online. That's kind of like really informed me creating my What's Inside series, where it's this beautiful um, science book that also could be read during story time that you could just enjoy at that level, but really encourages kids to go out, go into nature and explore the natural world. I think it's like so important that we invest in these really, really young kids to have a relationship with science so they don't feel scared of science when they grow up. So they're scientifically literate. See, that's the thing that I've been thinking about a lot. How can we make a society that's more scientifically literate? I think it starts at a young age. I think it starts with them going out and realizing that the world around them is to be understood and that science is the tool to do that. So yeah, I'm I'm so excited about my new books and I'm just, I, you know, I'm going to be going on tour where I'm going to be talking to kids all over the country and doing school assemblies really soon with it. So it's re- I'm just jazzed about what's inside a caterpillar cocoon. I'm just thinking about those munching, crunching caterpillars. They're munching straight through my brain. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. And by the time this airs, you will have already gone. But this is so cool to me. And I wanted to chat about this before I, before I, I could speak talk to you for the next six hours, honestly, Rachel, but I know you have a life to get back to, but you're going to Comic-Con and you, by the time this airs, you already have been to Comic-Con. Can you talk a little bit about how you as an illustrator and as a science education author get got engaged to Comic-Con? How did that happen and what are your hopes for it? Well, I've been going to Comic-Con as an exhibitor or a panelist since my first book came out. And my publishing company, which is Penguin Random House, went, hey, do you want to go to Comic-Con? And I went, yes, please. And they pitched <laughs> me for the panels. And then I started getting on panels. And every year I've been paneling. And then um, I was like, hey, this is, I mean, th- it's one of, it's like almost like a publishing trade show. That's what it started as. And that's a, still a very big part of it. And my book kind of, stri- all of my books kind of straddle this world of like, you know, sexy textbook and comic book <laughs> and also just like picture books. It straddles all these three worlds at once. So I'm just a natural fit for Comic-Con. And we have a booth this year where that we're exhibiting in. We're right near Heavy Metal Magazine, which I love. <laughs> awesome. I, I mean, I think they're, yeah, yeah. And so um, uh, this year we're ce- still celebrating the release of the history of the computer because that's my, when I go to Comic-Con, that'll be my newest release because my new book doesn't come out till September right after Comic-Con. Um, and to celebrate it, I bring out my own personal vintage computer collection. So I bring out my 1984 Macintosh, my 1977 Commodore pet, and I invite people to come and pet my pet. So we hold them up with 
<laughs> we load them up with vintage computer games and dude, the kids come over, the adults come over and they click clack away. And then of course I have a ton of art prints and books for sale. Um, but I like to bring my little mini museum with me whenever I talk about my books. I always like to bring something with me to engage people beyond just reading. And I'm a big collector of things. So like I just started, I mean, spoiler alert, and you can keep this in, but I just started writing my next book which is all about dinosaurs and prehistoric life. And so to start writing that book, I went out to Utah and I went to fossil dig sites. And I actually went to a dig site that had a ton of trilobites from the Cambrian explosion. And I got to take them home with me. So wow. now I, I'm like, yeah, it's pretty wild. I'm like, I call them my oldest antiques yet. So <laughs> <laughs> and I being able to bring history with you when you're talking about your books, I think is so important. And it's why I have so many partnerships with natural history museums and that I love speaking at natural history museums and I love going to them. Mm. And yeah, that's what I think. When I think about Comic-Con, for some reason, I always just think about the San Diego Natural History Museum, which is kind of like, I always call that my home museum, even though I'm based in like Santa Barbara and LA for a while, because I always do a book talk there and then I get to visit all my friends, which are all the specimens. <laughs> right. I, I am right here with you. I go to the American Natural History Museum on the Upper West Side in Manhattan quite often. And when I That's lived in D.C., I, and, and D.C., the Smithsonian, also the Natural History Museum there is unbelievable. And uh, yeah, and that's the thing. We we can see and learn that the visuals they're you know they're behind glass but they're kind of illustrations in that what you're seeing is a scene often from the way things might have been 200,000 years ago or 400,000 years ago or 5 million years ago and 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 it's I've it fascinates me I love it Rachel I as I said I could keep you here for the next hour or 6 but I know you have a life to get back to so I was wondering before I ask you my final question if you could uh, sort of give a little brief how I know people learn differently. And so I like to ask people to say how someone can find you. Somebody wants to know more about your books or your illustrations or your art. Can you just go down a list real quick? It's going to be in the show notes. But if you could just say those things, I would really appreciate it. Well, what's great about having a very complicated long last name like Ignatovsky is that I'm the only one. So. <laughs> You could literally just type Rachel Ignatovsky into your search engine and I will come up. So uh, my handle is Rachel Ignatovsky on Instagram. On Twitter, it's at Ignatovsky. And my website is rachelignatovskydesign.com. So just, and if any of those, for some reason, you didn't get a chance to, to, write that down real quick. Just type my name into <laughs> your little search engine. I'm the only one. I will pop up and you will find me. That's awesome. I love it. And there's also Etsy. There's an Etsy shop, which is also Rachel, Rachel Ignatovsky. If you search on that, you'll be able to find 
Rachel's beautiful, really cool illustrations, uh, like Hedy Lamar, who's a bombshell. It's awesome. And uh, and she, of course, was an, a fierce inventor and was responsible for some of the biggest technological advances that we've had in the last 50 years. Uh, so, yeah, these are ways that you can find Rachel. And I highly, obviously, encourage you to do so, especially check out the two I've read, but the other ones I'm sure are just as amazing. The History of the Computer and Women in Science are both just fascinating, so you absolutely need to check them out. And like Rachel, I'm the only Isolde Trachtenberg on the planet, so <laughs> so Rachel, I feel ya. Uh, so <laughs> I thank you again for being on the show, and I have just one question left, and it's a question I ask all of my guests, and it's a silly question, but I find that it yields some profound answers. And the question is this, if you had an airplane environmentally friendly, of course, that could skywrite anything for the whole world to see, what would you say? <laughs> Buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> and for skywriting, why not? <laughs> That's awesome. That I'm... Plane... That's what skywriting's for, right? Sure. I... Marry me. <laughs> Marry me, right. I, I had one person once say my Instagram handle. That's what I would put. <laughs> so I went, That's awesome. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> That's great. I love it. I love it. All right, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to be here. I'm super grateful. What a great conversation. I really appreciate you and the work that you're doing to teach kids to get curious about science and to, to want to know more. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks so much. This is Isolde Trachtenberg for the Creative Solutions Podcast, reminding you, as always, to be bold, be creative, and most of all, be kind. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you being here. Please subscribe to the podcast if you're new, and it would mean the world to me if you told a friend about it. Today's episode was produced by Isolde Trachtenberg and is copyright 2023. As always, please remember this is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Past performance does not guarantee future results, although we can always hope. Until next time, keep living what you believe in.